Welcome to the film is lit Halloween episode. Lightning crash, lightning crash. This is the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. Thunder. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert, self-appointed. I'm the self-appointed literature expert. My name is Laura. <laughs> nice. Reverse <laughs> nice that. Nice save. Um, and this is a special episode. It's a Halloween episode. Every television show does a Halloween episode and a Christmas episode. So we're this is our Halloween episode, and it's a special episode because it's a guest episode. We're bringing in a dear friend, a close friend, one of my best friends, a Boston University alum, go Terriers, my former roommate, Kyle Tag. Kyle, say hello. Hello, Film Is Lit listeners. Yeah, yeet. <laughs> Kyle, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I am a horror filmmaker and writer. Uh, I've been out in Los Angeles after graduating from Boston University, go Terriers, um, for a little over five years now, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, in that time, I have worked for uh, Blumhouse, Akiva Goldsman's Weed Road Pictures, uh, themed entertainment design companies, and a litany of other companies in various capacities. I've been hired to develop horror material for companies like Crypt TV um, and Stag Pictures. And I'm currently developing a bunch of other genre and horror projects, which are at various stages right now. So I'm uh, a big fan of genre material. So I'm very excited to dig in with uh, Danny uh, and the whole the whole crew here. I'm excited. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're excited to have you, Kyle. Thank you so much for sharing your long list of accomplishments. Yeah, you're <laughs> you're quite the talented writer. I've had the privilege of reading your some of your projects over the years and a few of them have blown me away. Not all of them. Some of them are crap. <laughs> some of them are not good. So that's fair. <laughs> yeah, and in addition to having a full-time job, You've also done, over the past few years, Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios in uh, Studio City. I don't know how you do that every year, but Kyle got me into Horror Nights two years ago. Uh, and I was in the Killer Clowns from Outer Space maze for a month before I, I went on <laughs> to my full-time job. I couldn't do Horror Nights and a full-time job again. I don't know how you did it, but... That month was one of the most fun jobs I've ever had. So thank you. For I did it by, of course. No, I, I, I accomplished that by hurting myself and hating myself a fair <laughs> amount. That's that's the honest. True. Like exhaustion, like sacrificing sleep and a general sense of stability and well-being will let you accomplish a lot more in 24 hours. I'll, I'll tell you that. True. Yeah. You are a masochist. <laughs> um, today on the pod... We're discussing a very spooky book and movie, a sequel to one of the classic horror films, for sure. One of the best films ever made, in our opinion. And books. And, and books. And I know what you're thinking. Why would anyone make a sequel to a classic, especially 30 years later? I mean, hey, Denis Villeneuve did it with Blade Runner. 
right? Anyone can do it. But at the same time, not everyone's Denis Villeneuve. Am I right? <laughs> Today on the pod, we are discussing Dr. Sleep, written by Stephen King in 2013 and adapted into a movie in 2019 by director Mike Flanagan, the prolific Mike Flanagan. This episode, it's going to be intense because we have on our hands three different takes. We have a lover, we have someone who likes it, and we have someone who thinks this material is sacrilegious and offensive. <laughs> so it's going to be a fight. <laughs> to really quote, getting into the sound effects. Yeah, to quote Ken Watanabe in Godzilla, let them fight. So Kyle is the Dr. Uh -oh. Sleep apologist, the super fan. Apologist? What's right. to apologize for? <laughs> True. Uh, yeah, excuse me. Uh, it, well, I'd say this film is very divisive because it is more so a sequel to the film The Shining than the book, although I would say the strengths of it is that it's kind of complementary and extension of both the original book and the original movie. That's uh, definitely a feat that this movie accomplishes, in my opinion. However, this lady sitting next to me has a different opinion. Yeah, but we can get into that later. <laughs> you want to start with the So I, I just wanted to set the stage. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm just waiting at this point. Like, <laughs> well, I know this is going to get ugly, so. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Um, Kyle, do you want to kick us off with your journey with the source material and the film? <laughs> Sure. Uh, but first, just to, to, to throw some water on the whole, oh, this movie is divisive idea, I would like to call everyone's attention to the current Rotten Tomatoes scores for the uh, 2019 adaptation of Dr. Sleep, which currently sits at certified fresh 78% on the critic tomato meter and an 89% audience score with 5,000 verified ratings. So I, I don't know. I, I feel like divisive is yeah. a bit of a jump. Well, it's divisive for, you know, it says 89% audience approved, but that 11%, man, they hate this. They hate this film. Um, so that's that, true. Yeah, that's... <laughs> That is true. They really don't like it. I guess that's what I'm trying to say, is that for the sure. most part, yes, it is tomato meter approved, which Rotten Tomatoes is our one and true god in film criticism. <laughs> it's all we have. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and then you have a small legion of Shining superfans, which to be fair, I mean, The Shining, one of the greatest films ever made. So it's a making, seminal work, yeah. Yeah, Stephen King was a madman to write this novel in the first place. But for someone to make a film adaptation of it, crazy. A, a fool's errand, especially considering how Stephen King publicly denounces Stanley Kubrick's interpretation. So to make yeah. a film, I can't fathom taking on this task. My, Mike Flanagan likes to put himself in challenging positions and take on impossible tasks sort of as a rule of adaptation obviously we've seen uh the haunting of hill house which is like another sort of big question of like why would you ever attempt this when arguably the definitive film adaptation already exists and obviously i, I know that series can also be somewhat divisive but i am also a big fan but i will go back to laura your actual question 
which was what my relationship with the source material is. And I will be upfront in saying I have not read the book. I have not read it. You know, despite being someone who has a huge who is a huge fan of the horror genre, I do not regrettably read a lot of horror literature. It's just uh if I'm being honest, not my preferred medium. I have read plenty of King. I feel like everybody has. I love Carrie. I've read the original Shining. Dr. Sleep, the book, I want to say, came out like not that many years ago. It mm-hmm. was like 2013, yep. yeah. maybe? Yep, Okay. So yeah, it's a fairly new book and I was busy. So, you know, at Boston University, go Terriers. So yeah. I did not, <laughs> I did not uh, get around to checking that out, especially when I saw the reviews which were uh, in many cases withering. Mm -hmm. But as I mentioned a moment ago, I am a big fan of Mike Flanagan, uh, including his arguably B-side movies like Ouija, Origin of Evil, um, which is another example of him putting himself in just an impossible position that nobody should want to be in. Why would you want to make a sequel to a critically reviled throwaway horror movie that audiences just loathed yeah um and like on top of that like not even just like redo it like he definitely had the freedom to just like kind of start over like wipe away the first one mm. and he was like no i want to make uh he said in an interview it's like no we wanted to make a you know a prequel sequel that honors um <laughs> you know the mythology that had been established so that fans of the first movie can enjoy this and i'm like well mike i love you i think you're brilliant there were no fans of the first movie yeah. so i don't so know who you were trying audience? to please yeah. but yeah well there wasn't one the film flops <laughs> which is a real pity but um anyway yes i'm a huge fan of mike flanagan um i'm obviously a huge fan of the shining in fact linking back to the horror nights of it all i did briefly play jack torrance in the 2017 horror nights maze out here in hollywood so that was that was an interesting time that's great wearing a silicone mask of not jack nicholson because they did not have the likeness rights um (laughs) they tried it actually was a pretty good mask given that limitation but No, uh, when I heard that they were going to actually make this movie, I was like, holy crap. Uh, I can't believe they're trying. Uh, Because another fun fact, and I think this is public knowledge, so I I can probably say this without getting in trouble. Akiva Goldsman, my old boss, actually wrote the original draft for this movie. Oh, cool. Um, And we had, you know, Weed Road Pictures had been trying to get it made. Uh, given their relationship with uh, Warner Brothers for many decades. Obviously, that version of the movie did not pan out, which, you know, is, is a shame because um, I think there there was a lot to like in that draft. But to hear that, I, I sort of just assumed when it stalled out that it was because, okay, we're deciding this is unfilmable. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for all the reasons we've sort of already alluded to. So when it actually you know, they actually said they were going to make it. I was like, I'll believe it when I see it, but thank God it's Mike Flanagan. Yeah. And when I saw the thing, I was just stunned by how well he pulled it off. So I've been, uh, I, you know, obviously the film did not do well at the box office. So I've been a, a champion of it ever since trying to urge people to check it out because it did feel despite the large promotional effort that it largely kind of flew under the radar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Budget was somewhere between thirty million and fifty-five million, and it made seventy-two million overall. 
Um, as we said before, you need to at least make double your budget in order to break even. So yeah, that kind of shows you how much this flopped, unfortunately, yeah. in my eyes. Laura, what's your relationship with the book and movie? You want me to go next? Hell yeah. Okay. Gosh. <laughs> Let the bloodbath commence. <laughs> yeah, as we've alluded to, I I also don't have a super long journey with either the source material or the movie. I just read the book, uh, or I just finished the book a few weeks ago. And to be honest, I was trying my hardest to keep an open mind for the book because I love The Shining book and I love the movie equally. And I just felt like I had avoided this book because I didn't need it. There was a perfect ending to both the book and the movie. They both end very differently. But I think both have their merits. And I really, really have a hard time with, you know, whether or not it's the same author or director kind of redigging into their material. I just ha I have a really hard time seeing where anything needs to be extended past the end of something that they put an end to. So I was kind of dragging my feet when we decided to do Dr. Sleep, but about I think it was literally page 100 in this 500 page book, classic Stephen King, Yeah, where I was like, God damn it. The bastard has done it again. Yeah. I, it sucked me in. I, I honestly, for the most part, he could write a shitty book and it would be incredible. Like his shitty quality is still like yeah. <laughs> mind blowing. So I really got sucked in. I actually really appreciate the fact that he wanted to go back to the theme of alcoholism. And especially now that he has sort of come out on the other side of alcoholism and he's talked very publicly about his struggle with substance abuse and the way that he revisited that in the book was really mature. And I thought that he actually dug a lot of interesting things out of Danny Torrance. So I'll be honest, I think it lost me in the last 100 to 200 pages. I think a lot of that actually could have been taken out and we still would have had a great story. So it took a little bit of a nosedive for me. But overall, I was surprised how much I liked the book. Then we started the movie. And personally, I think everything that was great about the book failed in the movie. And I tried so hard to be open-minded because actually Kyle said the movie was great and he was really excited to hear that we were covering it. And I trust Kyle's opinion, <laughs> but yeah, I guess this movie is where we, we diverge a little bit. I, I, yeah, I just had a lot of problems with it. And maybe that's because I watched, I read the book first and I, I was really looking for a lot of that emotional processing that Danny Torrance does in the book and and I just think it fell flat in the movie and I gotta be honest like the the actors that they cast to play young Danny and Wendy and Jack and Dick Halloran I I, I don't think it would have been better had they done CGI renderings of everybody's faces to like cast them as the same actors but this just kind of felt like a knockoff I felt that they were trying really hard but for me it didn't land and yeah, I just, I had a hard time with the movie. So unfortunately that's where, that's where my opinions are going to be coming from. <laughs> a this place episode. of hate. No, okay. 
everyone has the right. Very disappointed. Everyone has the right to an opinion. Yeah. So my journey, I like you, Laura, and you, Kyle, when I heard that a book was coming out, I was a little trepidatious. I'm like, wow, this scene, I know it's Stephen King writing a sequel, but is this necessary at all? It kind of seems extraneous. And that's what the reviews mostly were saying and still say to this day, when people rank Stephen King, they usually put Dr. Sleep towards the bottom. So I had those low expectations going into the book. And like you, Laura, within the first few chapters, I'm like, wow, this is great. Stephen King has proved me wrong. It's it's gripping. It's thr- thrilling. Stephen King writes descriptions and setups like no other. He's He's the king, uh, pun intended, of horror for a reason. I also share your sentiment of that the novel drops off in the last, I I wouldn't say the last 100 pages, I think the last 50. The confrontation in the book between Rose and Danny Torrance and Abra definitely is weak. After It's like 400 pages of setup, and then for it to all go down within a few pages felt super rushed and anticlimactic. So... Unfortunately, the book isn't perfect for me, but I I really loved the first two thirds. Now, the movie, when this came out in 2019, we didn't go see it in the theaters. I I don't know. We had we had wanted to, but it was one of those situations where it didn't happen. But I was a fan of Mike Flanagan by that time. I love Hill House. Oculus really blew me away especially the short film he made before Oculus, which is what got him Oculus in the first place, called Oculus 3, The Man with a Plan. I think it's on YouTube. I I recommend that short film. So I was a fan of Mike Flanagan, but I'm not a fan of the color grading in his films. I don't know how you feel about this, Kyle, but so Mike Flanagan uses digital photography for his films, all uh, uh, red cameras. And I, I just quite frankly, don't like the look of his films. And when when I was seeing the trailer for this, I'm like, wow, they really are bringing back imagery from The Shining and characters. And this looks super cool, but the way it's color graded, it just will always look different and will always look cheaper than the original. So that's kind of my feeling with the movie. I think it's quite the feat that this movie is good in the first place, I think. And it's also quite the feat that Flanagan is able to appease Stephen King by putting in the original ending of the book with the hotel burning at the end, the overlook. But he's also, it's also a sequel to the movie, Stanley Kubrick's movie. So that's quite the feat. I love the atmospheric horror of it all. Mike Flanagan certainly takes his time. I mean, The Haunting of Hill House is like 10 episodes, an hour each. So that is a long, sprawling story. The book is also sprawling. So is the movie. And the fact that it kept my attention through two and a half hours, I also think is quite the feat. But I have a few issues that we can uh, discuss. But the first character that I want to get into is Rose the Hat, played by Rebecca Ferguson. Kyle, what are your what are your thoughts on Rebecca Ferguson's performance? Well, hi there. Yeah, like they're they're trying so hard to make that happen, and yes. like I I accept it because she's so. Here's the thing: it's one of those like just going for broke performances. Mm-hmm. Like she knows what kind of movie and role she is in. Like she knows just how fundamentally awful 
her child killing Mm -hmm. character is. And she's just chewing up every morsel of scenery and dialogue she can get her claws on. Yeah. I think she's one of the film's greatest strengths, to be honest. I think she brings a lot of menace to a role we honestly don't hear a lot about. She's, you know, a variation of the, you know, sort of woman afraid of aging Mm-hmm. Uh, trope we see in a lot of things uh probably the other great version of that we've seen in the past few years is um queen ravana uh played by Charlize theron in snow white and the huntsman mm. um i've noticed they have very similar climactic uh monologues or words against their respective protagonists that's something i picked up on Interesting. my most recent watch but no i i think she I think she's incredibly engrossing to watch. It is a very big performance. So if you don't like the melodramatic and the big swings, it's it's going to not work for you. It's a very theatrical approach. But I don't know. I think something about it's got that uh, ineffable quality to it that makes it work. Like she honestly makes more work than what's actually on the page. And a lot of that I think comes from her obvious empathy for uh her fellow members of the knots um the way she like howls and screams in pain when they cycle and are murdered uh later on i think gives her some emotional foundation beyond just her lust for continuing to exist um so i i'm a big fan yeah, I I like how you wrap that up a lot because she's a really complex character in both the book and the movie. Mm-hmm. And because the knot is a weirdly there's like a weird sympathetic side to them because they are a family. And it's weird to yeah. say that because they're a child murdering soul sucking family. <laughs> child torturing and murdering. <laughs> torturing and murdering family. <laughs> this band of transient murderers who only survive after torturing and murdering young children and sucking out their shining, basically. So they target Mm -hmm. children who have what Danny has when he was growing up, right? That that gleam, that glimmer, that shining. Um, So that is really, that's a really interesting side of her. I, I personally was a little confused by her accent. That actually bothered me throughout the entire movie. I thought that, because I love her too. I love Rebecca Ferguson. Yeah. But we've seen a couple of performances with her where I don't think this is necessarily her fault. This possibly is a directing call. But in the beginning, it seems like she has a very strong Irish accent. And she says words like hat and that. Yeah. And then as you sort of get deeper into the movie, she then has an American accent. And then later in the movie, her Irish accent comes back when she gets flustered and angry. So that took me out of the character a lot, I'll be honest. But I was also going to say that I think I have two favorite scenes in the whole movie. And I think, I don't know if it's necessarily right to call it my favorite scene, but the most affecting scene was when they murder the baseball boy whose name is Brandon. Bradley. And, oh, excuse me, Bradley. Thank you. All the bees, all those B words sound the same to me. But that was so intense for me. Like I, I have not been like physically, like I lost my breath at that movie, at that scene. It was so uncomfortable and 
props to the kid who plays uh, Jacob Tremblay. Jacob Tremblay. Yeah. Props to that kid because when he was screaming, I felt his screaming like that. It like came out of the television and really affected me. And the way that she leaned into that and didn't put any humor into it, like that was a really scary scene. And I think she did an incredible job at that. Yeah. Moment. But other than that, I guess her performance didn't quite work for me. Well, yeah, because in the book, they explain she's originally from Ireland. Like she was joined the knot in the 1600s or something like that. I honestly don't remember. Um, yeah, so she was originally from Ireland. But in the audiobook, I think it's explained that she gained an American accent after living in America for all these years. But yeah, in the movie, the opening scene, she for sure has the accent. And then... Then when she's talking to Snakebite Andy in the trailer, it's like American, but British sometimes. And then it's full on American. (laughs) Yeah, we have this thing about Rebecca Ferguson. So when she is in her native accent, her English accent in like Mission Impossible and Dune, which we which I saw last night and she's incredible in Dune. Rebecca Ferguson's great. But when she tries an american accent like in uh woman on the train uh girl girl on the train and then and then this movie we both commented on it It, it's not refined (laughs) even though her performance i think is refined in its overblown bombastic nature so that's unfortunately a stain on the movie for us however the baseball boy scene yeah that's it's the most haunting scene in the book as well i think it's more haunting because right in the book before right before bradley dies he says like just kill me just kill me you know that trope but it is really effective uh when you're reading it you're like holy crap they're actually torturing and murdering this kid it's really visceral yeah it's yeah. it's pretty nasty but I love where The Shining movie is very focused on atmosphere and mood. Dr. Sleep is very plot heavy. There's a, a ton of plot in this. And I think it's pretty neat how Abra is able to track where Bradley Trevor is. And then from there, once they find his body in the baseball glove, they're able to track Barry, who had touched the baseball glove. I think that I think that's great storytelling and, and that's all Stephen King. But that's a organic way to keep the plot flowing and to kind of create a chase movie, so to speak. I just really dig the plot. I think, you know, instead of doing another haunted house movie like The Shining book and film was, this is a completely different type of story. So that's also one I wanted to discuss. So how do you feel, Kyle, of Danny Torrance's journey in this movie? One, do you think it was necessary for this journey to be on film? And two, uh, what do you think of where he ends up? So uh, as you might anticipate, I'm a fan. Yeah. <laughs> but I will uh, I will explain why. I think, you know, this is something I've noticed in a lot of sequels. And by the way, this isn't even exclusive to horror movies. It's all types of movies. Inevitably, the sequel has to deal with the trauma that the characters experience of the events from the first movie. Mm-hmm. You see it obviously very prominently in the new timeline of Halloween movies, but you can also see it um, in less quote unquote prestige fare, like Jaws 2, right? Yeah. Which, which did get back the, I think almost the entire principal cast. And that film, you know, pretty centrally dealt with the like 
okay, yeah, Cheap Brody obviously has some issues with sharks now and is now <laughs> even more trigger happy on declaring shark attacks, right? So inevitably, you know, the, the a sequel to The Shining is going to have to deal with what happened to Danny and Wendy. And I think there's there's a lot of interesting material to mine from like the hereditary clause of alcoholism mm-hmm. and substance abuse, which uh, I think they communicate really well. But I think there's even a, a sort of a broader thematic thing you can pull, especially considering uh, from the movie end of things uh, that this is, you know, both a sequel to Stephen King's The Shining and Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Uh, Stanley Kubrick was, you know, an infamously cold and distant director. And I would argue The Shining is a lot about the triumph of inhumanity, right? It's it's the triumph of evil. Like, yes, Danny and Wendy escape, but the, there is no redemption for Jack, which, of course, is, you know, one of the big things that Stephen King hated about the adaptation. Yeah. And... You know, I think Dr. Sleep sort of, and by the way, I think this is the main reason why King agreed to cooperate. It, you know, look, if, if Kubrick's film is the triumph of inhumanity, Flanagan's sequel lets humanity reclaim its place. Yeah. Right? It, it, it tells a story of how, though evil is overwhelmingly powerful and just grows and grows and grows, empathy, kindness, and sacrifice can defeat it and hold it back. And I think, you know, obviously that sacrifice of Danny in the end is really pivotal and does serve as a nice sort of circling back to King's intended ending. So, yes, I I think it does work on multiple levels. Yeah, it's really interesting to note, spoilers for anybody who hasn't read the book, that the book does end very differently. So, yes, right. I'm sure you've seen this online too, Kyle, but... Danny does not die in the end of the book, nor does Billy, nor does Aubra's father. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I think that's a flaw of the book because what I saw coming was Jack doing the same thing for Aubra that his father did. Because like you were saying, that was such a big point for King to make in The Shining that Jack had that flash of humanity to finally allow him to, you know, let Danny escape the hotel I saw the book going in the same exact way where Danny would sacrifice himself for Abra. That didn't happen. And I actually thought that that was a weakness because at the very end, because none of the good guys died, I actually felt like the stakes were completely taken away. I was like, well, why did I read this whole book then if good was going to triumph over evil and there weren't going to be any consequences? <laughs> like, right. That felt like a huge that actually felt like not King to me. I was like, did Stephen King even write this ending? Because this doesn't seem like something that he would be completely agreed interested yeah. in. Like yeah. it's, it's not an interesting story when nobody has to sacrifice anything to further that, you know, that goodness and humanity will continue into the next generation and stuff. So I got, I was devastated when Billy died and the way that he's killed mm-hmm. by snake yeah. Andy was really intense for me. Yeah. I didn't see it coming cause it's not in the book. And also the way that Aubra's father is killed was also very jarring. And you think that's going to happen because in the book, Aubra gets captured by Crow Daddy while Danny Torrance and Billy mm-hmm. are in the yeah. park killing all killing the, everyone else. The true not. Yeah. But so when reading that in the book, you think like 
oh, okay, so what happened to Abra's father? But it turns out Abra was just not at the house and she was coming out of school. And it's like, wouldn't Danny Torrance and <laughs> Billy come up with a better plan to keep her safe? Like keep her with her father. Yeah. And then you think just knowing how stories are told, it's like, okay, here's where the sacrifice happens. Right. Here's where, here's the second act dip where the characters are at their low point and they've failed. But no, they just kind of, well, they don't succeed. Abra gets captured, but then Abra immediately kills Crow Daddy or D or Danny and Abra kill Crow Daddy. So yeah. that's a welcomed change. Yeah. Um, here, I guess here's my thing about her father dying. I also felt like we didn't get a sacrifice scene with him. Mm -hmm. We just find out that Crow Daddy has stabbed him. Mm. And I I was looking for that kind of redemption. We eventually get it with Danny Torrance. We get it in the end. But I thought that yeah. that character was underwritten a little bit. And I felt a little robbed that we didn't get to see. We actually don't even see Abra or her mother really grieve over that death, which I thought was a little bit of a weird choice. We, I mean, obviously we see the mom come home and she finds her husband dead on the floor but we don't even see that we just sort of see her making a frantic phone call to Abra saying like where are you what happened and Abra hangs up and throws the phone out of the window so yeah it was it was just kind of like I felt like we lost that relationship with her parents really quickly along the way which was pretty seminal in the book like we had to see that a little bit more I do want to jump in here yeah go uh ahead. really quickly because one I agree uh, I do actually think that the lack of screen time for Abra's parents is possibly the film's biggest weakness, in my opinion. I think especially because her mother and like Abra comforting her mother in her time of grief is like the final beat, mm, really, yeah. like emotionally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, I like, you know, I sort of just accept it because the rest of the movie is so good. But I, I do agree that they don't quite do enough for me to buy it. Mm -hmm. However, and this this is sort of a big asterisk, so you know, take it uh, for what it is. The director's cut of the movie oh, does okay. devote more time to Aubrey's parents. I'm not saying it's a lot, but it's more. And you do get more of an actual scene with Aubrey's father confronting Crow Daddy. Interesting. It's less of a, oh, and now he stabbed. So th there's a little more there, and it, it did help for me. It is one of the, the benefits of the director's cut. But to, to your point, a uh, theatrical cut needs to stand on its own, and it is a weakness. So I, I totally can concede that, that it's, it's, um, it's not the brightest moment in the film. No, that's actually really good to know. I might just go back to see what else is there to mine out of that those scenes but I guess I don't know if you want to talk about this too Danny but in the book while I think there's a lot of time devoted to her parents that's really important for because they really have to work very hard to get her parents to believe Dan which is understandable and I think it's kind of a I don't know if I would call it comic relief, but it is kind of funny to have someone have to like pitch this whole thing now to people who have like, <laughs> they're like, what the fuck is going on? Like my child right. knows a dead kid and like, <laughs> right. It's like really, I think it's kind of a little bit of a bright point. The thing that I think the book could have cut out was Abra's grandmother, which yeah. I think the movie uh, does the right thing to cut out a lot of that yeah. storyline because ultimately there's not, a payoff for Momo, which is her, her Italian grandmother's name or moniker, not her name, but 
that was unnecessary in the book. I think a lot of that could have been cut out. So to the movie's credit, I think it was a good thing to just kind of stay away from that. Yeah, the movie completely cuts yeah. it out. Yeah. It just exists to connect the Torrances to, to Abra. And it's like kind of a kind of a clumsy connection, to be honest, because it, it, it puts Jack in, in an even worse light. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And like, did we really need Jack to be in an even worse light? Given well, yeah, what Kyle who he is, is yeah. referring to. So in the book, Dr. Sleep, it's revealed that Danny Torrance is actually Abra's real uncle, half uncle, right? Yeah. So Jack yes. Torrance had an affair with Abra's grandmother. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So so yeah, Danny yeah. is Abra's mom's half brother. Yeah, and honestly Woo. Yeah, not again, not necessary at no, all. I yeah. honestly again, this happens in the last like Danny was saying 50 to 100 pages of the book, and that was another point where I was like, Stephen King, really? Like that yeah. that situation like where where are all of these pretty bows coming from? This right. isn't what I'm used to with the Stephen King novel. I'm used to yeah. you know Cujo and Carrie where they're like hands coming out of the ground and like things aren't over and things aren't pretty and the monster is always coming back and the evil is always going to be there you know like that was disappointing to me I just didn't understand where that came from unnecessary so I'm glad that the movie cut that out I think it just would have been such a cliche weird yeah but the ending to go back I really think the movie is stronger because it makes the true knot and specifically Rose the Hat a legitimate threat. Because in the book, right before the scene at the Overlook or in, in the book, it's a new lodge that has been erected on top of the ashes of the Overlook. Before the final confrontation, Abra communicates with Rose the Hat and is just like, I'm going to kill you, bitch. And then Rose is like, bring it on. And then, and then Rose comes and just like, <laughs> and just dies. I mean, they like just kill yeah. her. immediately almost and in the movie it's a few scenes they trap rose in danny's mind which is the the maze Uh, that whole scene that was a reshoot actually they added that to the film i think it's stronger because that yeah and then the scene uh would this is not really prevalent in the book but where danny unlocks all the boxes in his mind it's a setup payoff uh, and then unleashes the shining ghosts inhabitants on rose i think is a great change a great addition super satisfying danny getting half possessed full possessed i just when he went into the boiler room i'm like holy crap flanagan's doing it he's bringing back the book and as he's looking at his mom and you see the younger Danny Torrance with the flames all around them. I'm like, that's, that's beautiful. I, I really, I really loved it. I know you had a problem. I didn't. That's, yeah. Uh, but but I, I think it comes down to the fact that it didn't bother me that they're using different actors. I think that's, I, I was able to accept it where mm-hmm. you were not. I guess that wasn't my only issue with that. Uh, well, I just didn't understand because Wendy was never a part of the Outlook's legacy. She escaped it entirely. Well, I guess not mentally because she had a lot of flashbacks after they moved to Florida. But I, I just didn't buy that he had enough peace dying in the hotel that she would show up to kind of like usher him into the other side happily. Like, I just, I don't know. I just didn't buy it. I, for, for There's me, an answer to this. Well, Kyle, yes. There really. There is. Let's hear it. They, 
they make it very clear in the director's cut what's going on. Oh. Um, so, because I, I, I hear you, like I see what you're getting at. At the movie's midpoint, where Danny is still acting as Dr. Sleep in the hospice and he encounters Dick for the first time in a long time. When he first see, remember, it's a fake out. We think it's like a scary right. ghost. Um, and in the director's cut, he prepares the box because he's going to try to lock him in there. Uh, and Dick's like, whoa, 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 whoa. One, it's me. And two, you can't do that to me because I'm not really a ghost. I'm a memory. There's a, there's a nuance to it. Okay. He's not he's not one of the phantoms that like has power over people with shine. So he's more of just like a memory that has sort of been conjured by Danny's shine uh, to sort of comfort and guide him. And my read was based off of that scene uh, is that Wendy is a similar thing in that she's less a ghost and more a conjured memory who's comforting him as he knows he's about to die. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. That does make sense. And I guess I could have made that association even with the theatrical cut because Dick Halloran, I, I kind of forgot that he had showed up in a moment of weakness for Danny, but I don't know if, if you had anything else to say, but I also wanted to comment on the the activities that the ghosts end up having with Rose at the end. The reason why Wendy comforting Danny right before the hotel burns down, I accepted it because yes, even not seeing the director's cut with that scene, the fact that Dick Halloran is able to communicate outside of the Overlook, it stands to reason that Wendy, now dead, can communicate inside the Overlook. And it's like Danny's whole life, he's been haunted literally and figuratively by the trauma of the Overlook. And now he's, as Kyle alluded to earlier, it's humanity triumphing over evil. But at the same time, it's also Danny getting over that trauma and he can finally rest, finally sleep. And it's like his mother of like, we're both over this now. And how poetic is it that we're both destroying the Overlook, but we're in the same place where this trauma started. So that, that's why I was able to accept it. Sure. Yeah. Nice. All right. Go ahead with Rose <laughs> <Okay>. now. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to know what both of you feel about this, because I think this is where... This is a plot hole that I think they tried to address in the movie, but it wasn't strong enough for me. And I think it just points out the weakness of trying to go back and like trying to retroactively write things after 30 years. <laughs> so yeah. they consistently try to explain away the fact that the knot has been away for thousands of years, but somehow they missed Danny as a child. And mm -hmm. for me... I thought that they were going to have the Outlook ghosts be sort of a different kind of evil entity than the Knot, because if Danny had been living in the Outlook Hotel for months and those ghosts needed to eat steam, that mm -hmm. even furthers the plot hole of like he was with them 24-7 for, for months and, and they quote-unquote missed him. Now... They try to explain that in the movie a little bit, but by pushing it to the point where they drank Rose's steam when she was dying, mm -hmm. just it, so it makes them the same kind of entity as the true knot, 
right? And not just like evil sort of like shadow memories. But but then Danny was there the whole time. I I just don't see. I can't. I can't make myself. I see. Allow that. I see what you're saying. Yeah. I didn't view it as the movie saying that the ghosts are the same as the true not. I just viewed it as through Danny Torrance he's influencing the ghosts to give Rose the death that she's given all the kids. Like they're evil enough to impose the evil Rose has been doing on back on her. Yeah. It just didn't feel true enough to uh, the, the legacy that the shining book and movie has had for 30 years. Like I, where would that, where would you read that in the book in the movie originally? Like where, you never got that. I don't know. That's just me. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, I, I hear you. And like some of the, I was hoping to talk about this at some point, and this is a good launching pad to address it. I always struggle as horror franchises uh, develop when an original entry has like a lot of ambiguity to it. And inevitably the sequels start to build out the lore and mm. give more concrete explanations for how things work. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, unless the, you know, the, the, the original authors or screenwriters or whoever were thinking very uh, proactively, there's going to be some retroactive work happening. Like inevitably, there's, there's very little way to get around it unless they've really built ironclad internal rules and stick to them. Great example is Paranormal Activity. First movie, you only get the vaguest hints of like why this is happening to these people, right? And we have no real understanding of what the entity is, what it wants or how it works. It's all very opaque and left to the imagination, which makes it arguably much scarier. Mm. And one of the things I did not like about the later sequels, though, even though they like, you know, were more technically complex and had maybe more sophisticated scares, was that they just kept giving us explanations to things that I didn't necessarily want. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very afraid as we were getting into Dr. Sleep that that was about to happen because infamously the shining is a tough movie to crack. There mm-hmm. have been literal documentaries discussing, uh, Kubrick's intentions and like all this, like supposed, you know, hidden iconography that points to what he truly meant. Right. right? He filmed uh, the moon know, landing. Is... <laughs> no, yeah, but yeah, he's common right. amongst a lot of his films. 2001 yeah. often works the same way. Yeah. So Dr. Sleep straight up assigning like real answers to a lot of these questions is, I will agree, inherently going to be divisive and controversial. And obviously Kubrick almost certainly did not intend for these explanations to exist, considering Dr. Sleep was not even, you know, conceptualized at that point. So yes, there is going to be a wee bit of clunkiness as you sort of go through that. And I think part of that is you just, I know this isn't a popular counter argument but like you sort of just kind of have to accept it mm-hmm. like that there is going to be those bumps in the road as they try to make this thing work and i i totally understand if it like disrupts it for you and like like to the point where you just don't buy it or enjoy it i'm someone who despite my misgivings about that dynamic felt it worked especially i think that the, the big thing for me about like rose in particular and the the the, the ghost the shining ghosts attacking her was the restraint they had up until that point. Like, other than the Room 237 hag, we (laughs) don't see any of the overlooked denizens until that point. Mm. So when it happens, it's such a big gut punch of, like, things you recognize and, like, uh, probably were traumatized by when you first watched the movie. Mm -hmm. Like, you sort of were overwhelmed by it and you sort of accept the emotional logic 
of oh these monsters are going these bigger monsters are going to kill this little monster who thinks who has the hubris to think that she could defeat the overlook so i just sort of accepted the emotional logic of it more than i did the actual nuts and bolts explanations yeah, I yeah. mean, that's fair. I, I think I have such an emotional connection. I'm just one of those nerds who has such an emotional connection to the book and the movie that like, I can't, I just can't break the original rules, yeah. you know? Like, that's just who I am. I, no, I totally get that. I'm the same way with, uh, to bring up Dune again, Frank Herbert wrote an original trilogy of books and then he wrote an additional trilogy and that additional trilogy adds more lore. It goes back and clones characters from the previous novels. I'm like, this is all unnecessary and it, it taints <laughs> like we didn't need these explanations. Like you had, you had a foundation there. So yeah, I, I think this all goes back to the fact that just returning to the overlook in general, like what a big risk. It's bold. Yeah. It's so, so bold. But I think the ending of the movies and improvement on the book in every sense. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I completely disagree. I because we both expected <laughs> Danny Torrance to die when yeah. we were reading that, and I think it's very fitting at the end when Avra's communicating. You're like, oh wait, did he? He's probably dead, but you don't know for sure. And and then you get confirmation that no, he's dead. And it, it's a nice bow for both Avra's and Danny's arcs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess, like, I don't know if we want to wrap up our discussion about Jack. I don't know if we've, like... Oh, well, we haven't even discussed wanna... the scene, so which... Oh, I don't know what scene you're talking about. The, the bartender scene. Oh, right, yeah, I was thinking of a different scene. But oh, okay. I guess, well, if we want to jump into more Jack, then I, I can kick it off. Yeah, because let's get that Jack. Well, all, all I was going to say that kind of bridges between these two discussions is that I think that Stephen King really wanted to dig into the trauma of generational alcoholism. And as much as I agree, I think Danny Torrance is the most interesting out of any of his characters to have that come up in his life. And, and in the book, it's honestly excruciating. Like we find him at the absolute bottom rock bottom of where he could be and I actually think that the movie could have gone a little further into showing how terrible his life has become um I I actually thought they were going to shy away from the dead baby in his bed which they actually they do show in the movie but the the time where he is has slept with that baby's mother and he steals the money from her wallet and walks away. That's actually a recurring theme for him throughout the book. And that's something mm. that he cannot share during his AA meetings because he's so ashamed of it. And, and part of that memory for him is seeing the kid walk into the living room and find cocaine on the t- coffee table and try to eat it like candy. And, and it says like, candy, candy. And that's so traumatic for him that he figures out that, you know, he, he left that kid there. The kid was beaten to death by his, his uncle or his yeah. father. Mm-hmm. Like that's so traumatic for him that he can't bring himself to talk about it at AA. And it takes the entire trajectory of the book for him to open up finally and talk mm-hmm. about that story and of how rock bottom he really was. And so again, I think Danny Torrance is a perfect character to bring that out of. But 
the whole thing with the knot, it's, it's also, I feel like it's the book and the movie is trying to have it focus on two things and it kind of fumbled in the end for me. Like, I think they should have focused on Danny's trauma rather than kind of bringing Aubra in and trying to like be that vehicle to move him through that trauma. Mm -hmm. I think they could have just focused on Danny and just had things trying to attack him again. And it would have been like a little bit of a tighter story. That's where I think both the book and the movie just kind of lost its way. So I don't know. I don't disagree. I think, uh, by the way, why did he name her Abra? That was a... Oh, gosh. Abra Kadabra. That was a choice. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Just low-hanging fruit. Again, like, just That was a, a bit easy. of a weird... Yeah. Um, no, I I, uh, I hear you. Again, I gotta say it. I, I feel like I've said it several times. The director's cut does give a little more. Um, we should have watched that. No, it's interesting <laughs> to, the, to, to hear that. Yeah, Lay it on me. No, no, it just it adds more to his time at AA, more time before he meets Billy. Mm. Um, like the scene with the the morning after scene is longer and more drawn out and painful. You know, when you have a three hour runtime, you can include more of those beats. And it's it's a big story that has to cover a lot of ground. And to mm. your point, yeah, I can see a version where Abra is really not involved and it's purely Danny trying to get over his to work through his alcoholism and his generational trauma and the true knot happens to pick up on him as he does that. Uh, I see what they were going for in terms of, you know, Danny trying to sort of become the father to Abra, the surrogate father to Abra that Jack never could be for him. I think it's it mostly works in the movie. It's it's admittedly my least favorite dynamic. Uh, You mentioned this earlier, but you know, the point where they have to like try to explain this to her parents, it is comical because it's sort of just sort of a, a weird, strange character relationship. And, you know, I think they do what you can with it. And that obviously stories have pulled that off before in a way that isn't creepy or unpleasant. Yeah. But it says something that it is, it does read as funny. And again, the director's cut extends that scene because I think Flanagan knew that like, this is sort of a big leap. To, to accept, uh, you know, that all of this is supposedly going on and that Danny Torrance isn't some predator putting these crazy ideas in her head. So, yeah, no, I, I see a version without her. I don't know. I, I don't purport to know how exactly that would work. But the parts that are here, I, I don't dislike. And I do see what they're going for, both in the, you know, from what I know about the book and what's on the screen in the movie. And I, I think it I think it mostly works. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and for me, it works because they have that scene set up, the morning after scene set up. Yep. And that shows Danny abandoning someone. Yes. And what Aubrey represents, even though in the book, as Laura said, it's a whole other thing that represents shame and embarrassment of his disease. What they do in the movie is kind of shift that to, okay, Abra now is Danny sticking with someone. He's not going to abandon mm-hmm. her. He's, mm-hmm. he's going to stick by her side. And then where they get to the addiction part of it is with the famous or infamous bartender scene with his father, yeah. which is not in the book. And that's the ultimate test. He's not only facing the trauma of his father, but his father is more or less demanding that his son take a drink just ruin it all right it's there already, yeah. yeah and uh he references a line from the original shining book you're gonna take your medicine which was yeah a phrase mm-hmm. often 
often muttered by Jack in Stephen King's original text. And yeah, I can see some people being put off by bringing in a different actor to play one of the most iconic horror roles of of all time by Jack Nicholson. They brought in uh, Henry Thomas from uh, Mm -hmm. The Little Kid from E.T. We had the fortune of seeing him in person at the L.A. Book Fair a few years ago. He's also an author. Uh, so yeah, just a lovely guy, uh, very astute and smart. And he, he was great in Flanagan's Hill House series a, yep. as the dad there. But yeah, I think they, for me, effectively address the addiction part of the story in that one scene of like, th- this is the source of your trauma and it's either sink or swim. You're going to break here or you're not. And Danny slamming that drink is kind of showing, proving to himself and to his past trauma that I'm over you. Kyle, how did you feel about that scene? I think it's the best scene in the movie yeah. for all the reasons you just said. Um, and sorry, I have to advertise it again. The director's cut has an extra <laughs> Jack Torrance scene. Oh, does it? Yeah. No, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact specifics of what happens, but some of the alcohol gets spilled on, it might be during the slam, gets spilled on um, Danny's jacket. Mm. So Jack insists that he come into the washroom so they can clean it up. Mm-hmm. So they, it's it's the iconic red-painted bathroom from the Kubrick movie. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to remember the specifics of what happened, but I think it's more of like that slow burn exposure to him where like Jack is still sort of pretending he's not Jack right uh, or maybe he doesn't know it's obviously left kind of ambiguous what um how much the ghost knows or doesn't know mm-hmm. but as i recall the scene is basically danny like accepting what he's done and sort of realizing what he's done and that's when he receives the call from abra that they're coming because i believe that currently happens at the end of that scene in the gold room so mm-hmm. it's just more of an extended moment mm-hmm. but i think the performance from jack is great the medicine the mouths to feed monologue i think is spectacularly written and done um yeah like how he says the medicine is to cure all of the pressure of having a job and having mouths to feed and having all of this stress and um i think what he says to danny is you seem put put upon like you're people are putting these responsibilities on you and don't you want to just take your medicine and like turn your back on that And I think that that does go back to the original spirit of Jack Torrance, who ultimately in the book is a good guy, but he puts so much pressure on himself and society puts so much pressure on him to be, you know, the perfect father, the perfect provider and man that he kind of gets like pushed, obviously, toward his vices. But I think going back to the relationship of his father, my personal favorite scene in the movie is when jack excuse me when danny gets his i think five year sobriety token and he says he gives that speech about how you know thank you Mm. for myself but also this is for my father jack Jack. and that i think that scene uh, other than how horrifying the baseball boys death scene was for me i kind of teared up a little bit like i think that was a really good way of like that that scene could have happened before or after like let's say danny didn't die and he was at aa at the end of the movie 
That right. that scene really gave a lot of closure and a lot of forgiveness to to Jack because and I think that again it just sort of extends how Mike Flanagan wanted to go back and say like listen there was humanity in Jack at the end of the original book let's give that back to him by showing the audience that Danny understands like that's who my father was before his drinking yeah. so yeah I thought that for me is my personal scene favorite scene in the movie that scene is also extended in the director's cut is <laughs> it really <laughs> yeah <laughs> So is it safe to say that all the scenes are extended in the extended cut? Every single scene. Yeah. Every. I mean, it's not, but it is 32 some minutes of additional material. It's just longer. He gets, he says a little more. There's more like natural pauses and ums and stutters and like him, like trying to find the right words. Uh, I think the theatrical cut of that scene is fantastic. Um, and he really does a lot with few words. Yeah, Ewan McGregor is, I think he's really great. I loved his performance oh, yeah. in this. Yeah. I thought he was actually really well cast. And yep. he, he does a great American accent. <laughs> Sorry, does. not to throw shade on Rebecca Ferguson again, but. Yeah, we, we love you, Rebecca. But <laughs> amongst the sky, searching for Abra and mm-hmm. communicating with her. And then a trap that Abra mm-hmm. sets for Rose. Now, the visuals in that scene alone, stunning. Rose looking upon the earth from space, the nighttime sky, clouds floating by, of her being parallel to the ground, the way the camera's placed, it it feels like a dream, like an ethereal movement across time and space, which is, I think, exactly what Flanagan was going for. And uh, from my research, apparently that was the first sequence he storyboarded, and that was the first thing that he shot and knew that he wanted to do. So... It's just a special sequence, particularly well done. It really captures the, i use the word again, ethereal nature of the book where Rose and Abra would communicate with each other through this dream-like space, this mindscape, if you will. Um, so that was one of my favorite scenes. Kyle, I didn't know if you wanted to comment on just those telepathic scenes in general and your thoughts on them. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's a stroke of genius from Flanagan because mind reading is inherently yeah. uh, not very visual. And they found a way to make the telepathic mind games uh, extremely cinematic and probably some of the most memorable sequences in the movie. There's, there's some sickly, yeah. gnarly body horror at that the conclusion of that sequence with the the tearing of her hand and then but also abra's like yeah. you know featureless face as she's like conducting the probing like it's all very i don't know like it, it, it's 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 sort of a blank slate of a word but it's inspired like you just see it and it makes sense like he he knows how to communicate these like complex and sort of cerebral ideas really succinctly through basic imagery uh, so I, I think it's a really impressive sequence. And I, I didn't actually know that that was like the thing that he was really drawn to at first. And I can totally see why, because it's it's definitely among the most iconic I agree. I like how you brought up the featurelessness in her face when Rose come ba- comes back, because I think that's a really good demonstration of how smart Rose is. I actually thought I was a little concerned about how they were going to make her not one of those cliche, like gifted kids because that's a little bit how she comes across in the book. Mm. Uh, just, uh, just a little bit obnoxious. Yeah. Like she's, you know, she's good at everything. She gets straight A's, you know, like she's 
magical and all, you know, like that was a little annoying, but I think that that scene demonstrates her intelligence because when Rose attacks her mind at first and kind of gets into her head and they do that sort of body swap astral projection sort of moment, Rose yeah. reaches behind her head, which is cool. Cause you can see it's Rose's hand. Yeah, and so, I think so she's cool. about to look yeah. at her face so that she knows exactly what Abra looks like. So I think Abra catches that and is like, I'm going to make myself featureless mm. so that even if oh. I, even if she comes across me, yeah. like that's part of her trap. <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that. That's brilliant. Well, yeah. Like yeah. I think that that shows how smart Abra is because right. she's picking up like really quickly all of these things to like, not only set the trap, but also like protect herself just in case right. Rose comes. Because in the book, it's a little clunky. Rose is saying out loud to no one, I need to get her to look at a mirror. I need Aubrey to look at a mirror. Right. And you're like, okay, that's kind of spelling it out to the audience that once Rose sees her face, she can locate her. So yeah, yeah it's a real organic way in the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. I didn't even think of that. I thought Aubrey was just messing with her, just scaring her. But yeah, that- it's just, it's just like, it is a little comical because she's wearing oh, a, and a wig. wig. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right. And she literally looks like one of those creepy faceless mannequins but like kyle is saying i think it shows how smart she is like it's just kind of a like a physical way of saying like i'm just a mannequin like you don't know anything about me yeah it's subtle and unsaid right yeah show don't tell (laughs) that's a lot of flanagan's filmography is that haunting striking imagery that's says more than just clunky exposition Kyle, I don't know how you feel about the more technical elements of the film. So we like the astral projection sequences, but I don't know if you had any comments on the editing, cinematography, pacing. Or did you have another favorite scene? We both talked about favorite scenes. Oh, yeah. Unless you want to. Oh, no. I I mean, I alluded to my favorite, Mm -hmm. which is the Jack Torrance confrontation. So I'm I'm feeling pretty comfortable on that end. As far as like the technical qualities and elements of of the thing um danny you mentioned your frustration with the color grading and sort of the look of flanagan's digital photography and you know i can't disagree it's it's a really good looking movie i think the cinematography in general is really striking but there is that sort of asterisk of man i wish this thing had been shot on film or had been color graded just you know a bit differently a lot of Flanagan, Flanagan clearly mm-hmm. likes to color grade a certain way. And, you know, it's look, they're his movies. I think some of his best work has been, ironically, when he's made a concerted effort to do something different um, in terms of visuals alone. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, and everybody forgets he made this movie, but Ouija Origin of Evil has a very different look to it because it's very specifically trying to look like a throwback um, old occult supernatural film mm-hmm. that you'd find in like the seventies. So it has a very, I, I, I'm assuming he also shot that on digital. In fact, I, I was on set for that. Actually, I'm almost certain he shot it on digital, but something about the way they approach the lighting and the color grading gives it a very different look. And I, I wish he would experiment a little more because yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. But that said, there are, there is just some, some really, fabulous imagery in this in this thing um we've of course alluded to the astral projection but the the thing i always am like oh man that is cool and clever is the way they show uh the <gasps> movements of the true yes. uh, as the oh caravan. yes this is such a 
please yeah, continue talking so well about it because it's so striking. Yeah. No, it's it, it's like the, the it's it's like the pulsating veins of rural America, right? And they're this like sort of clot that's moving along it like a like a little you know <laughs> toxic snake. Uh, and the way they speed up the frames sometimes um, and like make it skip frames so it like looks like it's lurching around faster than it than the one is humanly and practically possible. It's so well done. They, 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 they communicate sort of the enormity of the spaces so well and the amount of traveling that happens throughout the movie. And, you know, thinking about it now, I'm realizing this as I'm saying it, it's definitely a callback um, and building off of the opening shots sure. of Kubrick's The Shining, which, of course, has those big sweeping helicopter shots of the mountains leading to the Overlook. But, you know, I, I think Flanagan and his cinematographer found a way to build on it and evolve it in a way that was right for the movie that doesn't just feel like, you know, we're reiterating what Kubrick's already done. Um, so I really admire and respect that they were able to come up with their own set of cool establishing and transition Yeah, um, the segments. part where Abra is watching the death of Brandon... Brad Bradley. Bradley. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And they, like you were saying, they kind of what is it? Do they slow down the rate of frames because it they the it almost looks like a stop motion video, and they're they're yeah. they're probably either skipping frames yeah, or they okay. probably sped yes. it up. Thank you Possibly for correcting both. me. You went to film school, so I'm going to default to what you said. Yeah, went to went to <laughs> BU film school. Go Terriers. So, yeah. C- calm go, school communications. Calm. Uh, calm is bomb. Go Terriers. Go ahead. Okay. So that whole part too, because it's very different than any other way that we see them traveling, but it kind of looks like a spine yeah. breaking and sort of it. And they yeah. even I think yeah. put in extra sound to make it kind of crack. It's like it's kind of like a little oh that is so creepy and eerie and visceral because we talked about how much body gore goes on in this movie. And I think it's like it's it makes that connection between yeah. these extremely corporeal like monsters that travel in this really creepy like you were saying like this clot that just kind of moves through america and i think it's also really smart like this might sound a little pretentious but in the shining really the only traveling that we see is them getting to the overlook hotel and then wendy and danny escaping from the overlook and and dick's you know travels his slow Dick's journey slow through the ice immediately get killed <laughs> oh, um so that that is almost like a stage play in that way where it's very contained to like three different rooms and it's very claustrophobic and that's the point of the movie and the book like there's nowhere to go there's nowhere to run there's nowhere to hide but in this movie there is space and like there is only space and that's totally communicated yeah. through the the crane shots and the drone shots and all of those overhead shots of the the RVs and the, the huge caravan and they're camping outside almost every time we see the knot they're hanging out on the beach or on a campground yeah. or on a mountain and that's like totally different it's like a total opposite of what the shining is and i think it's nice that they leaned into the complete opposite like this could have been kind of a copy paste of the shining and everyone's contained in the same place again yeah um, and they're like fighting for space, but I think yeah. that it was really smart to completely divorce those concepts. Yeah, and in the book, totally Stephen agree. King has a whole chapter just explaining how the knot moves, 
Mm-hmm. This is really interesting and it's and, creepy. and different from, of course, the original story in, in every way. Like, who would have thought a sequel would feature a band of almost immortal vampires who travel the country <laughs> in the guise of being these gypsies that have RVs? Like, like who would have thought that was the story? But he goes in this whole detailing of how they dress the way they dress to blend into the background. You never question someone in an RV on a trip on the road because it's like older oh. white people yeah. with like visors and Bermuda shorts. Yeah, and, and trinkets and catchy sayings on their t-shirts. You leave those people alone. You don't you don't want to deal with them. They're in the background. And Stephen King is right. successfully world builds on the true knot it's super interesting there's a scene that could have been in the hands of any other author very controversial where abra as a young kid predicts 9-11 and then they cut to the true knot on 9-11 and they camp out in new york on the morning of 9-11 and basically after the tragedy happens they're there ingesting the steam for the entire day Mm. it's a way to use real life imagery that's something that's ingrained into the mind of every american from a certain age obviously who who witnessed the attack it's a way to in like in one scene you fully get what the true not are about they're not here to stop tragedy they're here to let death happen so they can literally ingest steam to become more powerful i mean that one scene alone And that happens in the very beginning of the book. I was reading that on September 11th. I had no idea that that was coming. I read it that day and it was like, it was really intense. Like, and I I agree. I think in, in the hands of any other author and even in the hands of Stephen King, because we were in first grade when that happened and we don't necessarily have this or second grade, I guess. Yeah. We don't have exactly the type of trauma that that would have happened to someone. So I'm not necessarily the right person to say that he did it in a correct way. Mm -hmm. I think it's really bold to do that kind of thing for him. And it's, it's a really intense scene, but like Danny said, it it definitely sets a tone (laughs) for the entire book. But as you alluded to earlier, Kyle, both in the book and the movie, they really have that sympathetic angle to the true not because they stress the family part of it and they're they've been together for millennium so it, it's a complex villain which i really appreciate they're not just evil vampires there's something more sure. going on there they're developed sorry i'm just i want to be clear the 9-11 thing is yeah. real. Yeah. that's like an actual scene in the book but but yeah, I, it's, yeah. wow. I i'm okay. trying to say that it's very tastefully done if you can believe that i don't know if i made my case no, no, no. Like, I, I hear everything you're saying. And like, if you guys are telling me it worked for you guys, I believe it. I'm just like a little stuck. I'm surprised so, Twitter didn't jump on that. You, you would think that would be like a whole thing. Is that they do talk about how young, ch- they target young children because that's when the steam is pure. So right. that, so, so, I mean, when, when I say, or when we say it works, I think the only plot hole other than the fact that it it can be read very easily as disrespectful to victims um is that those people are were you know adults for the most part and so in that sense i'm not sure that it like i i guess like there was just so much trauma that day that that's why they migrated to Mm -hmm. sort of ingest that steam but i'm not sure i like 
again, it's, it's a really tough call to say whether it worked or not, because I think it's like, even when the book came out, which would have been, I'm, I'm blanking on my math. Eight um, years ago. No, no, no. Like, um, oh. so what, it came out in 2013. So 12 years after the attacks, it's, you know, that day in America, like even now in 2021 is still very intense. And so it's like, I'm not sure if that maybe was the, the best choice by Stephen King but like I said I think it just again it goes back to like he set a tone and it's very what a yeah what a what a way to establish yeah. your villains they went to yeah. 9-11 to snack you know <laughs> I think Flanagan made the right call in excluding you know, that a, moment. another thing so I feel like I'm talking a lot but another thing that they toned down that I think was the correct call was that Stephen King in the book has Dick Halloran share with Danny He's still alive. This is kind of a flashback, uh-huh. but he he discusses the fact that his grandfather sexually abused him when Dick was a child. And that grandfather came back to Dick as, you know, the hag in the bathtub sort of thing where it continuously haunted him until oh, okay. he figured out how to create a lockbox in his mind and like, you know, basically put that trauma to rest. And to be honest, that's in the first, that's in the first like 10 pages of the book. And I was like, holy shit, like we're diving into some really dark, really dark stuff. And that to me, that set a tone where I was like kind of resistant. I was already resistant to the book and I was like, I don't know. And then that September 11th attack scene happens. And that's why it took me about a, a hundred pages to get into the book because I was just like, whoa, like sexual abuse of a child in pretty graphic detail. And then the first scene with the knot, like it set a very, very dark tone. So to not have that scene about Dick's grandfather in the movie, I think was also a really good call because I think it just would have like, that's just a lot. That's right. a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think that's exactly focus. what I'm trying to say. Is it, yeah, it would have just been like so distracting that would, it would have taken, it would have discombobulated yeah. audiences and then you have to get into the whole thing with Abra. Like, it's just kind of like, yeah, it's a lot yeah. to ingest right up front. Yeah, in the movie, Dick just says that his grandpa was a bad man and abused him. And yeah, yeah, that's all you need. Uh, yeah. How lucky was Mike Flanagan that he could incorporate Dick into the story just as a force ghost, and it works just like it did in the book with Dick being alive. Like it's mm-hmm. the same thing. Yeah, how lucky? Yeah, yeah. And it's not Literally. like you could cut those scenes because yeah. that's important for setting up how. Danny is dealing with trauma and puts the shining people into the boxes in his mind. So very important though. Yeah. He has a, he has a lot of exposition dumps, but the, the, the actor mm-hmm. navigates them really yeah, well. Yeah. Let's shout out honest. that actor. His name is Carl Lumbly. Uh, there are points where I'm like, is that mm-hmm. the original actor of Dick Halloran? He was really yeah. convincing. Yeah, I loved him and went the the performer for Wendy. I thought was there was there was a sound well. bite um, where I actually think that they might have used Shelley Duvall's voice, and if they didn't, if they didn't use oh, her voice from the original movie, like I I don't know how she made that happen with her voice, but it sounded so much like her. It's when Danny is sitting on the bench with Dick Halloran. And she runs outside and she goes, Danny, Danny. Yeah, that. Oh, uh, with the Danny. That sounded like yeah. she had to me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with the voices, 
Yeah, it doesn't quite look like Shelley Duvall, but definitely sounds like her, exactly. Yeah. Totally. Well, I guess I was going to shout out a couple other actors that I thought were really great. Let's Um, do it. So... To start off, I think Billy is a lot older in the book. He's more of, I think when Danny meets him, he's probably about 60 or 70. And they aged him down a lot and made him more of a confidant, which I thought was really smart. And Cliff Curtis is the actor. And I thought he did a great job. I was I was totally torn up when he ends up shooting himself uh, because Snake by Annie tells him to. Um, but I thought he was a great character. And the other one that I was really impressed with was Crow Daddy. Um, gosh, I wrote his name down. Zon McClarnon. Zon McClarnon? Okay. Yeah. He's yeah. great in uh, Westworld season two. I haven't seen And Fargo yet. season two. Lots of season twos for the guy. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, uh, I <laughs> guess I didn't really construct a face for him in my mind when I was reading it. But when I saw him on screen, I was like, oh, yeah nailed the casting on that one so those were two of my favorite performers uh i don't know what about you kyle i I did want to call out um the performer for billy because i I do think he brings a lot to his like relatively few lines he really manages to facilitate the journey for danny um we i I, again i'm despite the accent woes i'm a rebecca ferguson fan so i will give her the two thumbs up um (laughs) We've given a lot of love to Ian McGregor already, but I'll do it again. Henry Thomas as Jack, I think that is, but, but talk about an impossible daunting task. And yeah, in my yeah. opinion, like, look, he's not Jack Nicholson. He's not even really trying to do Jack Nicholson, which I think was the right call. You just sort of accept that this is who Jack or uh, Jack Torrance is now. But yeah, his delivery of that monologue is so fucking bone chilling. Oh, can I swear on this? You can edit it out. Oh, yeah. You can, oh, you can fucking swear. Okay, I can fucking swear. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> All right. Damn, I would have been fucking shit. I would have been swearing this whole time. Um, I've been swearing. Or, or not like a sailor, but you can swear a little bit. <laughs> All right, shit. Sorry, I won't fucking swear so much. Um, <laughs> you can edit this out later and make me sound like a, a good little mama's boy. Um, It'll be like, I did not mean to swear. <laughs> no, seriously, Henry Thomas, though, I think he probably had in many ways, the hardest job mm, yeah. and for so little screen time, like, you know, so easily could have been jumped on by everyone. Right. I, I feel like the most, uh, most of the time when people talk about that scene, it's in a very positive light. So I, I think he is, uh, he's really had a career renaissance, mostly facilitated by Flanagan. Uh, and I'm always excited to see him and stuff. So the uh, big, big ups to him. Yeah. Oh yeah. I also wanted to shout out the landlord for uh, Danny's apartment. He's just like, listen, jerk, just pay me $85 a week and don't talk to me. <laughs> yeah, we got to set up this clumsy chalkboard thing. So this is how yeah. we're doing that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I also just wanted to shout out the random cameo by Bruce Greenwood. I was not expecting that. And Dr. John... Gosh, was it Dalton? Uh, Dalton. Dalton, yeah, is a major character in the book. So I actually thought that he was going to be a massive character in the movie. Oh yeah, he's in it for like ten know, seconds. Kyle, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Kyle, you can tell me if he's in the director's cut, but he is. He ends up being Danny's AA sponsor, right? And so he's actually in it just constantly because, especially in the beginning of 
Danny's sobriety journey, he's just, he's meeting with Dr. Dalton, like, hourly almost like yes yeah. you know that relationship grows and i think the movie did do a smart thing by kind of collapsing his character into billy by making billy younger mm-hmm. it gave him more of an emotional connection with billy whereas like billy's a lot older he is a recovering alcoholic but he he just doesn't have that like emotional sort of brotherly connection that kind of comes more from dr john dalton yeah so i thought they did a really good job at kind of folding that all in yeah um Oh, and and this is kind of a random tidbit too, but the way that they made Dr. Dalton's office look exactly like the office at the Overlook Hotel when Jack gets the job. It's kind of that pink salmon color and there's a window in the back with a bunch of foliage outside. Yeah, I don't know exactly. if I picked up on that. Oh, that's oh, exactly Laura the production picked design. On that immediately. And it's identical down to the American flag on the right side of the desk. Really? Identical yeah, set. It gets, it, yeah, wow. identical. And I think it's just like one of those kind of turning points, I guess, in both Jack and Danny's lives. But obviously, Jack life, Jack's life goes down the toilet, whereas Danny's is more of a renaissance where he comes out of his alcoholism. Yeah. So. Oh. I don't know. That's just kind of a little fun. I thought there were some fun little callbacks to the original movie, but it wasn't overbearing. Yeah. And the most obvious callback was Danny returning to the Overlook and shout out to the production designers yep. for meticulously recreating the Overlook down to the last detail. They the could maze. Right. Yeah, yeah. The maze and then the hotel itself. They couldn't reuse any sets. Those sets have been lost or, you know, whatever. So they had to recreate everything. It's a shame that when you compare it to the original film, the color grading instantly makes the new film stick out like a sore thumb when, you know, just take that blue tint off of it, please. Uh, I would have preferred that. But yeah, the insane attention to detail also should be mentioned. So yeah. But Kyle, any closing thoughts on the film? Uh, You seem to make Laura like it a little bit more. So that that's quite the feat. Just to be clear, to those listening, she sort of rolled her eyes a little bit and kind of did that, like, mm, I don't know about that face. Well, all I was going to say was you made, you intrigued me enough to find a YouTube compilation of what went into the director's cut. I'm not going to watch this movie again for a while. I'll be honest. All right. That's fair. I, I would encourage people who maybe were less than excited about the theatrical cut to give the director's cut a try. I know that is a big ask because it is a three-hour movie and you might not want to subject yourself to that. But I think your patience will be rewarded if you are a fan of this type of material. And just in general, I would say uh, if you liked Dr. Sleep, don't sleep on Mike Flanagan's (laughs) other material. I actually did not mean to set that up, but here we are. Um, (laughs) He has it written on his desk. Yeah, I've got like a bunch of like quick quips I can throw out (laughs) in any given moment. That's why I keep staring over here. Um, (laughs) No, check out Flanagan's other stuff. Uh, I've referenced Ouija Origin of Evil, which is a flawed movie, but a very fun one if you're into that sort of like throwback um, supernatural hijinks movies. Uh, Haunting of Hill House. Danny mentioned Oculus, one of his first movies. I think his first like widely distributed feature uh, was called Absentia. Uh, features Doug Jones, the guy from uh, Pan's Labyrinth, uh, Hocus Pocus, The Shape of Water. He's a very popular uh, creature performer and actor in his own right. Absentia is excellent and a great example of what an intelligent director can do with a very small budget. Hmm. So definitely worth checking that out. 
Uh, and yeah, all of his, obviously you've probably seen his stuff on Netflix. Give it a shot. Uh, Flanagan's, I think, one of the best genre directors in the game right now. And I uh, want him to be able to continue to make stuff. Nice. You got anything to plug? Any Anything coming out? Any new books? Uh, I can plug my book. Um, I don't have any new books. Go for it. But I'll plug the book. Sure. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I used to work for a themed entertainment design company. I am a major fan of all things theme parks, uh, Disney, Universal, the Cedar Fair parks, foreign parks. I try to, you know, follow it all. Visit as many as I can. I have a book published in the Theme Park Press called The Cynic's Guide to a Reasonable Theme Park Vacation, which is about as large an oxymoron as I've ever uh, heard one. Um, <laughs> no, it is both a sort of skewering, no bullshit um, exploration of the major Disney and Universal domestic theme parks. Uh, I would say there's practical, like, uh, you know, on the ground advice that would have been relevant had a pandemic not happened. Uh, so now everything is different at the parks, but it still functions just fine as a broad advice book about who you should be vacationing with, why you should be vacationing, when and how, all of those like sort of big macro ideas, as well as if you just uh, like theme parks and want to hear maybe some blistering opinions about them, about what makes them work and what happens when they don't. Uh, it's available for purchase on Amazon. Feel free to check it out. You know, I was going to say it does have a lot of functional advice, but it's also just really funny in its own right if you read it as a yeah. book, because obviously we ordered it when it came out. We were very excited for it to arrive, oh. and it arrived right in time we were the for the first pandemic. Before his family. We were the first. <laughs> yeah. first. Uh, we need to get our copy signed, actually. I should have brought That's the true. book to your birthday party. Oh, um, sure. Next time we yeah. see you, I will get a signed copy. But yes. anyway, yeah, it's just very fun even if you're at the park because again I actually read it in like the first week of the pandemic so I wasn't reading it with the you know anticipation of going to any theme parks but I still had a great time reading it so thanks for plugging that yeah (laughs) yes check it out thank you for having me on it's crazy it's so well written I'm uh just so impressed by your work Kyle it's a shame that you're such an asshole in person (laughs) okay um (laughs) just uh, insufferable I I know hey you went to be you. What can you expect? Go, Go Terriers. Terriers. Uh, yeah, well, uh, Kyle, out of four stars, what would you give Dr. Sleep? Uh, it's a four star for me from both the theatrical and director's cuts. Awesome. For me, the theatrical cut is a three out of four. Solid. It's, it's definitely a recommend. I have some problems with it, but three out of four. And now we come to Laura. Oh, gosh. Uh, it's so hard to rate movies that I feel like I don't want to watch for a long time again. Um, Great. <laughs> <laughs> can I just can I just not rate it? Sure, but okay. you got to rate the book though. Uh, okay, out of four stars. Um, I'm gonna give it a two. I it's definitely on the lower end of the Stephen King novels that I like. It comes nowhere near the original Shining. I think the Shining is obviously a lot better. So yeah, two out of four. I'm going to go three out of four for the book. It was shaping up to be one of my favorites that we've covered on this podcast, but the ending drops the ball like royally. I don't know what King was, what was going on in his life, but it's like perfection until the last few chapters. So yeah, three out of four for the book. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Kyle, thank you so much for coming on, bud. This was a pleasure. 
everyone go follow Jump Scare Factory yep. right on YouTube and uh, Instagram. That's Kyle's own collection of videos that he's directed and written and produced. So that's quite the library his on there. And yeah, any other places that where people can find you if you wish to be found? You can follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's just literally at my name, Kyle Tag. Uh, if you want to hear my hot film and theme park takes. Nice. I do. I don't know about, I can't speak for everyone, but I certainly want to hear those. All right. All righty. Well, have a happy Halloween, a spooky Halloween, everyone. And, and a safe Halloween. Yes. Stay safe out there. Get um, vaccinated. Looking out for our costumes. Yes. Get everyone get vaxxed. Um, vaccinate your candy and eat the vaccinated candy. I want or just give out va- Pfizer vaccinations Kit as candy. Exactly. Give them to me. <laughs> Moderna moon pies. Yeah, <laughs> right. that's better. Moderna musketeers. What will work? Johnson. Days. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's wrap it up. We gotta wrap it up. All right. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.